With that said, let's dive into today's message. We are in part four of our series, uh, Divine Shift, and we're looking at the life of Jesus in this series and looking at t- ways in which he, he taught and he lived out was a shift from the norm of the day. And we've been looking at different uh, aspects of his life and different parts of his teaching and how uh, they really bring this shift of mindset, uh, a shift of perspective, and today will be uh, no different. As we look to his word, and uh, we're going to look at John chapter 5 today at a specific shift, a specific moment that he had. Uh, What's interesting about the text we're going to look at today of John chapter 5, number one, it's at a place called the Pool of Bethesda. If you didn't know it, we are right now, for those of you who are watching online, uh, in the room, we are actually gathering in Bethesda, Maryland. (laughs) Uh, If you wonder, is it a coincidence? They're the exact same word in the Aramaic. Uh, It means house of mercy. Uh, actually, if you, you don't know the history of this city, Bethesda, it was actually named after a church uh, years ago in the 1800s that was called the Bethesda Meeting House, uh, that the roots of this city is very much uh, founded uh, in faith. And, uh, but this, this pool of Bethesda, this is the only uh, point in Scripture where actually Jesus, usually people came to Jesus to be healed. This is the only recorded instance where Jesus went to someone to heal them. In John chapter 5, and to give context of where we are in the narrative of the gospel, uh, earlier Jesus had uh, spent 40 days in the wilderness in prayer and fasting where the devil had tempted him. Uh, Then he had already called his first disciples to follow him. And then also by this point in the scriptures, uh, you know, his, his, uh, around this time, it's everyone's favorite miracle. Come on, he turned H2O into Merlot. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Some of you are still laying hands on your faucet being like, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, Cabernet. In Jesus' <laughs> um, uh, So now in, in, in five, and here's the shift we're going to look at today. The man who was healed at the Pool of Bethesda, uh, which we don't know his name, um, he very much was in a disempowered state. Uh, we'll see that for 38 years he had this disability, and we're going to get into even more so culturally why it was so disempowering to be where he was. But Jesus comes along, and he empowers him, and the Spirit of God empowers this man to get, grab his mat and get up and walk after 38 years of having a disability. And we're going to talk today about how we can live out an empowered faith in our life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today. God, your word is truly a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. We pray as we open it, you would speak to us today, God. We posture our hearts and our minds to receive from you all that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read John 5. We're going to be in verse 1. Uh, It says here that sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Uh, just to give context, there are five times in the scriptures where Jesus goes to Jerusalem. This is one of those five times. Now, there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, uh, which is Aramaic called Bethesda. It's surrounded by five covered colonnades. These colonnades were fairly large in their structure. Uh, most scholars presume there are probably several thousand people who were gathered around these pools at any given time. Uh, So the five colonnades are pretty important. Here, there are a number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been there in an invalid for 38 years. So he had had a disability for 38 years of his life. When Jesus saw him lying there, he learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. He asked, do you want to get well? You can think about this, almost the audacity of the question. 
He says, do you want to get well? And we're going to get to that, why Christ asked this question. He says, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. When I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, to give context to what he was speaking to uh, at that time, um, in fact, there is actually no documented evidence that this belief uh, is true. So some even say it was a complete legend. And here was the thought process, that there was a belief that angels would come down, stir the pool, and while the angels were stirring the pool, those who got into the pool while it was being stirred were healed. Now, again, there's actually no documentation that this ever happened. So we don't know if it was actually true or if it was actually it was a legend. So he's saying that, well, listen, the pool's been stirred, but when I try to get in, I don't get in in time, and I'm still not healed. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. So the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, uh, it is the Sabbath, and the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who has healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see that you are well. Now stop sinning, or something worse will happen to you. What he was speaking to is that, listen, you have experienced physical lameness, but sin will actually create in you a spiritual lameness. So he says, stop sinning. He's not saying if you sin, something worse physically will happen to you. He's saying, no, far more devastating things will happen to you if you keep sinning and not repent. He then the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. We're going to look at this passage uh, really three things that happen. Uh, this man walks through uh, to really shift from this disempowered state, the state where there's no hope. Uh, the pool is stirred and nothing changes. 38 years to where Jesus comes and he's empowered by Christ and the Spirit of God to pick up his mat and walk and be forever changed. Here's the first point. If you're taking notes, let it go. Come on, somebody cue Elsa. Let it go, let it go, come on. Y'all know it. Don't, don't, don't play games with me, okay? That song is a fan favorite in the Burroughs household, namely presently by a three-year-old named Abigail, and you will normally find her around 3 p.m. in an Elsa dress singing this with all of her heart. It's one of the cutest things you'll ever see in your life. Let it go. Here, here's what this man had to let go. He was sitting there saying... I have no one to help me. And I love the response of Christ. He doesn't say, man, I am so sorry you've had no one to help you. He, he didn't sit there and kind of sort of, sort of uh, mourn with him, grieve with him. No, he said, take up your mat and walk. Anybody else, when you read the scripture sometimes, just, just think about it. Think of this exchange. We often would think Jesus would come and say, oh, I'm so sorry I'm sorry your feelings are hurt. No, he says, listen, take up your mat and walk. Here's the thing I want you to grab hold of. He wanted this man to let go of the expectation that somebody else would fix his problem. He was waiting for somebody else. Have you ever met someone who their problems in life is somebody else's fault in life? Come on. If that person's with you, just look straight ahead, okay? 
where they have problems, right? They have marriage problems, but the first thing that comes out of their mouth, well, my spouse, my wife, my, my husband, they have financial problems. They say, well, I haven't gotten a raise in so many. It's, it's always somebody else's fault. Listen, <laughs> I think in this moment, Jesus was speaking to him, saying, listen, I want you to hear this. God is the one who performed the miracle, but he invited a man to take part in that. There's a part you have to play. And part of that is expecting somebody else to do for you what God is saying, I want you to do this for yourself. So you have a part to play. See, the very nature and essence of faith is that faith is active. Uh, faith is not something that's stagnant, not something that's passive. It's an active part of our life. Here's what he also knew. I mentioned before this man who was disabled. Culturally speaking, if you had a disability, two things were presumed. Either it was, number one, it was your fault because of your sin. That was the belief. Uh, of course, you know, there are evidences where clearly it's not that case. Uh, one in which in the Gospels, Jesus spoke out. But that was the belief. Or it was your parents' fault. And if you had a disability, you were actually pushed to the outskirts of society. You actually did not have much economic or social capital. So this man had probably been treated unjustly. Now Jesus, we see in the Gospels, Jesus stood up against the unjust systems that were existing then. But here's what Christ knew. We can change the externals of your situation, but if something doesn't change on the inside of you, it won't last. And we can, change, we can change the conditions of your life and the circumstances of your life. But if you don't have a heart change, it won't last. Can we just speak frank for a moment? That's why, listen, the ills that we see in our culture around us, listen, we should have just laws. We should do practical things. But listen, the only way for ills to truly go away is when the Spirit of God changes the heart. I was expecting an amen right there, but I'll just move on, okay? I don't know if y'all believe this, but listen, God can do far more than any piece of legislation could ever do on its best day. Listen, we still need laws. And if you work in for writing laws and you're in that world, bless you. It's a call from God. But we need God to change our hearts, and he knew that with this man, that he needed to have an internal change in order for him to have true change. What's intriguing is, so he had to let go of others, the expectations of others helping him. The religious leaders were offended by what Jesus did, and here's why. They had a box in which Jesus was supposed to fit in for them. Because, let me give you context. To, to heal on the Sabbath and to pick up a mat on the Sabbath, unless somebody was on it. By the Mosaic law, you can only pick up a mat, true story, if you were carrying someone on it. If you pick up a mat without it, it's considered work, and work was a no-no on the Sabbath. So these Jewish leaders were like, this can clearly not be God because he healed on the Sabbath. We all know God doesn't heal on the Sabbath. That they had their expectation. Listen, they had a certain expectation for how God worked, and God moved outside of their expectation. Can I, can, I, can I just permit this question to you? Perhaps, listen, you are missing the activity of God because he's not coming in the package you were expecting. You're expecting God to show up the way he did before or the way that you thought he would. 
Like, like for example, you actually, the person you've been praying for, the Mr. Right or Mrs. Right, may actually be in the row next to you, but you didn't think they would look like that. Come on, somebody. <laughs> True story. When I met Christina, man, never in my, in my mind did I ever think I would marry a woman with red hair. But can I tell you, I think I love her red hair. I love that one. I thank God he blew up my expectations. Sometimes, listen, you, you, are, you are maybe asking God for maybe a particular role or promotion. And maybe one comes across your desk, but it wasn't what you were hoping for or expecting. I just want to submit to you, perhaps you're missing out on the blessing of God because it's coming in a package you didn't think it would come in. Man, some of us need to reframe our perspective. Say, God, help me to have your perspective of situations, of, of circumstances, so that I can receive what you have for me. Isaiah 55, 9 says this, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You have to remember God's perspective is different than ours. But not only did he have to let go of these expectations, he had to let go of some mindsets. He had to let go of some unhealthy mindsets, and we have to let go of some unhealthy mindsets. Here's one. If you think about this for a second. He was, had this disability for 38 years. For 38 years, he was lying on this mat. And listen, if you do anything for 38 years, how many of you know, even if it's not the best for you, you can find yourself getting comfortable in it. And sometimes, if we can be honest, we can get comfortable in our dysfunction. Like we can have dysfunctional aspects. Like some of you, there, maybe there's some dysfunctional communication styles in your marriage, but you now have been communicating this way, even though it's poorly for so long, you just got uncomfortable. Some of you have had some dysfunctional financial practices in your life and you remain in debt, even though you make enough, if with the right practices, you could get out of debt and live the life financially God's called you to. But listen, if we're not careful, we can get comfortable in our dysfunction. As I was thinking about this, um, if you were to, uh, anybody here, when you are at, at your house, and maybe even this afternoon, come on, anybody take that, that holy Sunday afternoon nap? Come on, somebody. Um, and, and when you, maybe, I don't know about you, but for me, uh, I try to take a nap on my Sabbath, and uh, I have a blanket. Anybody else, you have a blanket? You know, your go-to blanket? Come on, somebody. Like, if somebody else has your blanket, you're like, that's my blanket, right? Come on. You, like, lose your faith on somebody. That is my blanket. Give it to me right now, right? It's like, um, pray for me. Uh, so I, ha I have a blanket, uh, and I actually brought it today. Don't touch it, okay? Look all you want. Just don't touch this puppy. Okay? If this is gone, when I leave here, I'm going to lose it, okay? I'm just kidding. But here's my blanket. Come on, it's thick. It's big. Come on. It's fluffy. It's warm. It's, it's amazing. This is amazing. I'm telling you what. Like, when I am taking a nap in this, I go to heaven. I feel, I feel it. The Lord is with me. The angels are surrounding me. I just wake up. I, I wake up actually more holy after I take a nap in this. <laughs> but when I'm napping, like say it's my Sabbath, on my Sabbath I also work out, as I do most days of the week. So when I'm napping, there's sometimes I wake up. You ever have this moment you get up from nap and you're like, Lord, I don't want it to stop. <laughs> Anybody else? You're like, please, just, 
keep going, right? <laughs> and, uh, but here's what I know. I got to get up because I got three kids in the house. Come on, somebody. And, uh, but I also try to work out on my, my Sabbath. So, so I want to go to the gym. Now, listen, I could stay in this comfortable blanket. But here's what I know. That if I just stayed in this comfortable blanket, my health would take a hit. So I knew I have to put aside some comfort and pay the cost and get on my, my workout shoes and go to the gym and hit leg day. Come on. Why? Listen, because sometimes what's comfortable, too much of that comfort can be dysfunctional. And, and here's what I want to submit to you. Are there any comfortable yet dysfunctional mindsets you've allowed to come in to your life? that you've allowed to, to begin to affect. I want to ask you this. Are there any comforts as you think about your life that maybe you need to turn from, you need to put aside and say, I'm going to pursue the ways of Christ, even if it's less comfortable and more costly? Can I speak to one other type of mindset you need to let go of? Uh, dysfunctional generational mindsets. Here's what it can come across. Maybe you've heard this before. Well, you know, us Johnsons, we're just bad with money. Well, you know, insert your family name, we're just terrible at relationships. Well, you know, again, fill in the name, we're just bad at blank. We're just not good at blank. Have you ever heard those comments before? Have you ever noticed some unspoken kind of conclusions in your family? that maybe there are some conclusions about your family. And listen, can I help somebody out? Just because it's generational doesn't need, mean it needs to become dysfunctional in your life. Just because your entire family is in debt and have, have maybe have a hard time managing money doesn't mean that's God's will for your life. Just because you can count the number of men and women on, you need more than both of your hands who've been divorced in your family, doesn't mean that's God's will for you. And if we're not careful, catch this, we can align our faith with dysfunctional, ungodly, generational mindsets just because it was the norm for our granddaddy or our mom. Listen, we honor our parents. We honor our grandparents. And can I tell you what's very honoring of your, your, your family is if you have any generational dysfunctional mindsets, you break them off your life in the name of Jesus. And here's how you do that. Listen, there's a part God plays with the empowerment of his Holy Spirit. You pray for God to help. But you also have to do your part. You have to pick up your mat. That means you have to work on your marriage. Maybe behind you is a stream of divorce after divorce after divorce, but you say, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preemptively get a marriage counselor. I'm going to preemptively put myself in situations to get the help I need so I can break off to so the new norm with my children and future generations is, is no longer divorce but healthy marriages. It's no longer lots of consumer debt but freedom to be generous. Are you following me, church? What is that in your life? I remember a friend of mine some years ago, his family, it, it, was, it was poor financial practices. So everyone in his family had a consumer debt. And listen, there, sometimes debt is inevitable. That was last week's message. But there are sometimes debt is preventable. 
And the, the Bible says the borrower is a slave to the lender. You feel that pressure. And it, it limits what you can do. It limits your freedom when you have a payment to pay somebody else every single month. But he decided in his 20s, I want to break this cycle. So through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, through prayer, through seeking God, but also practically, he took our Financial Peace University class. He put some practices in place to get financially healthy. And now, living debt-free, now he is breaking a cycle in his family. Are there any dysfunctional, generational mindsets and practices you need to break in your life? Come on, sing like Elsa once again. Just let it go. Let it go. All right, that's going to be in your head afternoon. You're welcome. Uh, so what do we do then? Colossians 3.10, we put on our new nature, Paul says. We put on the mind of Christ, as he says later on, and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. How do we put on the mind of Christ? As we read the word of God, we sit under the teaching of the word of God, we study the word of God. You're in a community group, a faith and life course, where you're studying the word of God, you begin to put on the mind of Christ. As Paul said, you set your mind on things above. And you begin to rewire and renew your own mindsets. Dr. Caroline Leaf, she's a neuropsychologist. Uh, she's got great books, by the way, written on the topic of faith and neuropsychology. She says, as we think, we change the physical nature of our brain. As we consciously direct our thinking, we can wire out toxic patterns of thinking and replace them with healthy or godly thoughts. So you got to let go of, of unhealthy expectations, let go of, of unhealthy mindsets. Here's number two, is you have to overlook offense. For 38 years, this, this man had been on a mat at this pool. He probably had many occasions for him, him to get offended. Like, have you ever had unmet expectations come on like your friends told you this restaurant and they're like this is amazing the service is superb come on the steak is incredible the salmon perfectly cooked you get there and the salmon tastes like rubber come on and the steak comes out like burnt leather and all of a sudden it's your waiter's worst night and he's in a bad mood come on have you ever had unmet expectations this man had experienced unmet expectations for 38 years. You can imagine he would have had many opportunities to get offended at God, to, to get offended at other people. Like, I can't believe I'm still not here. I can't believe I'm still here 38 years later. But he didn't get offended. On the other hand, the religious leaders were offended because God worked in a way that was outside of their box. We have a choice about whether to get offended, but here's the truth, and you need to write this down. Just this, this will help you this week. Are you ready? Just write this one down if you write nothing else down. These are the words of Jesus, Luke 17, 1. He says, it is impossible that no offenses should come. In other words, it is impossible for your coworker not to get on your nerves. Come on. It is impossible for your spouse not to let you down. Come on, I just freed somebody up right there. It is impossible for your uncle or your aunt or your cousin whose political views are different than yours not to rub you the wrong way. Come on. That's what he's saying. He's like, it's impossible that offenses won't come. 
Like offenses, I want you to hear this. Offense is inevitable. Offended is a choice. Offenses will come. Come on, somebody will cut you off on the beltway today. Come on, right? Now, you can either flip them the bird and be offended. Come on. Or you can say, no, in Jesus' name, calm down, hand. You can decide, am I going to be offended or am I going to overlook the offense? That word offense there in the Greek, it literally means the, the bait on which is placed on a trap. It refers to a bait. Jesus calls offense a bait. John Bevere wrote a book around offense called The Bait of Satan. And he says this, offense is the bait of Satan. It's bait. Do you know that offense and unforgiveness will lead to destruction in your life? The research points to it. The University of Pennsylvania School of Psychology in 2017, five years ago, they did this exhaustive study on the power of unforgiveness and failing to forgive people who've offended you. Here's what they found. A failure to forgive is associated with increased anxiety and depression, so negative psychosocial consequences, and elevated blood pressure, vascular resistance, decreased immune response, and worse outcomes in coronary artery disease. Has negative physical consequences, negative psychological consequences when you fail to forgive. You know what I love? When the Bible, when, the, when science affirms the Bible already said, because over and over and over and over again, Jesus teaches this, Paul teaches this, is forgive. And we have to understand this too. We've been conditioned in a culture that has a hard time forgiving. Have you noticed that in the past several years? They have a hard time forgiving. That if someone has a wrong tweet, if someone does something wrong, our culture can be quick to dismiss you. But listen, as the people of God, we are called to be quick to forgive you. It doesn't mean we say, hey, there's no consequences. It's, it's all good what you did. It's not saying that. It's saying you release them to God and you no longer hold it over their head. As I was speaking about bait, uh, I was thinking of this past week. I was actually away uh, this week at a pastor's retreat and had some older pastors sort of investing myself and some younger pastors. And uh, we had some downtime, and they had this, on this property we were on, they had this bass uh, fishing pond. Now, let me be clear. Your boy is no fisherman, okay? Um, I don't really do outdoor sports like that, okay? Um, I, don't, I don't really hunt. I don't fish. Um, but I did fish that day, and I actually caught a bass. Someone be impressed, be impressed. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. I don't need it, but I want it, okay? <laughs> don't be too impressed. True story. Uh, on the property we were on, they actually had South Carolina's Bass Fisherman of the Year. He was 30 yards from me coaching the whole time. Come on. <laughs> um, actually, cool story. He's from Maryland. Come on, somebody. Uh, and he's a Ravens fan, so God loves him a lot. Um, <laughs> So he immediately bonded. He was like, bro, you are terrible at fishing, but let's go Maryland, okay? Um, just a side note, I love the fact, come on, here at Maryland, I grew up in Maryland. Look, as Marylanders, you're proud of our, our flag. Come on, we're the best flag. And listen, he's in South Carolina. He got the Maryland flag on his truck. I said, come on, somebody. Best flag. Okay, moving on. I was in my notes. But he taught, he was teaching me the different lures that you can put on like a fishing pole. 
and how different lures, like that day, he was like, hey, the bass are biting this green lure. And it's green lure. I was like, man, whatever, I'll do what you say. <laughs> like, I trust you. You are the Lord of this pond, right? <laughs> you know? Um, and sure enough, I, I caught with this green lure. And as I was thinking about, because you know, Jesus spoke on this idea of, of bait, and I was thinking about, about lures. And uh, so I have some fishing lures here with me today. And, you know, the way a fishing lure, the one I use is like a worm. This looks like a little minnow, if you can see it there. And, and the power of a fishing lure is you drop in the water, you know, you move your rod around, you slowly reel it in, right? And then the fish sees this lure, and it looks like lunch. So all of a sudden, they chomp down on it, right? And you feel that tug. So what do you do when you catch it? You yank that rod. Why? It drives that hook in their mouth. If you love fish, I'm sorry. I released him. Um, he'll heal. I prayed for him afterward. I said, in Jesus' name. I didn't pray for him, actually. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm off my notes. So fishing lure. So... You know, you yank once that hook settles in, right? And once that hook is settled in, they'll, they'll jerk around, but oftentimes they can actually drive it deeper. So sometimes that fish will even stop. He eventually stopped struggling because I got him. And, and that's what these lures do. I want you to hear the words of Jesus. This is what LaFence is like. It looks good. It looks justifiable. Like when you think about someone wrongs you, you're like, yeah, remaining angry at him. Come on, let's be honest. It feels good for a moment. You're like, yeah, I'm just going to be angry at this person. Come on. And you're like, you're like even, come on, you ever been so offended? Okay, don't judge me. But you had a moment, you're like, you know, I hope they, they, they get a nail on their tire. But come on, they don't get hurt. They get a nail on their tire. Come on, somebody. Uh, don't judge me. You ever hope, you know, you get so offended at somebody. You're like, man, I'm so mad at somebody. It looks good. But here's what Jesus says. It's a bait. It hooks you in. And the next thing you know, there's psychological consequences. There's physical consequences. And you've experienced this before. Offense can actually mess with your relationship with God. It can mess with you trusting. Other. Have you ever been offended by someone? And then maybe you've had a hard time trusting other people like them. Maybe someone of the opposite sex offended you. And then you had a hard time trusting someone of the opposite sex. Maybe an employer offended you, so you had a hard time trusting future employers. Church, I want you to hear this. The words of Jesus, it's a bait that will bring destruction on your life. James says this, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. How is this relatable to offense? That word envy means to be so hot, so offended to the point of boil. Like, you're so offended. You're so mad. How could they? I didn't deserve that. And listen, that might be true. But listen, he says, there you will find every evil practice, every sinful thing, every evil practice. Have you ever been offended and you find yourself start judging that person? You find yourself start thinking you're better than that person? 
That pride, that selfish ambition, the Bible says it comes before the fall. Church, I want you to, I want you to see this. The enemy wants you offended. He'll hook you in to bring every evil practice into your life. Can I just can I speak honestly as someone who has been offended? I, I have walked through this. Listen, at the end of the day, you being offended will only hurt you. And that's part of the enemy's scheme. It will only do damage to you. It won't affect them. It will only affect you. So what do we do is we, we overlook the offense. We, we overlook it. The Bible says it's to your honor to overlook an offense. Can I get real practical? Here's a helpful way you can overlook an offense. Is assume the best about that person. Like you didn't get an invite to that, that outing where all of your other friends were there, but you weren't invited. And you assume, I just, I, they must have just forgot. Or you didn't get that role you were hoping for. Somebody else less qualified than you in your mind got that job over you. And you assume, I think the boss has a better role in mind for me. And you're just thinking, Jeremy, Jeremy, what if they meant the worst? They might have. I, I, I'm not trying to help you figure out the problem. I'm trying to help you prevent yourself from becoming offended. So assume the best. You might be wrong, but guess what? Your spirit will be right. Say, hi, you must have forgot. Okay, come on. You didn't get in that graduate program? Man, God's got better for me, right? Just assume the best. That's practically how you can overlook and overcome offense. But what do you do when you are offended? Colossians 3.13, Paul says, Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. What do you do when you're offended? You forgive. He says bear with each other. He says put up with each other's issues. That's what he says. I heard it said this way. Develop thick skin and a soft heart. Thick skin. Do you want to know how you can be salt and light in this world? Is become hard to offend. Like become like it's hard to offend you. Thick skin. But have a soft heart to people. One thing that's helped me personally, I'm going to get real practical, and, we, and you've heard this saying, it's cliche, but there's truth to it. Hurt people hurt people. People who offend others have oftentimes been offended against. Like, you've offended people when you've been offended, right? I've offended people when I've been offended, right? Because every evil practice is there when you're offended. So as you begin to see people through that light, you have a soft heart towards them, it begins to allow you to, to, to forgive, allow you to over look. Here are some signs may be offended. Uh, you avoid the person who offended you. Come on, you're invited to that family gathering, but you don't go because you know who will be there. You're invited to a dinner party, but you won't go. Come on, you take the long way around the office to avoid the person. Come on. Uh, around school to avoid the person, you avoid them. Here's a second sign. The thought of the person makes you cringe or even in your ungodly moments curse. Come on, somebody. The thought of them, you're like, oh. Have you ever had that person in your life, you thought of them, and all of a sudden your fist clench? You're just like, oh. Your blood pressure rises. You might, be, you might be offended. Here's the last one. That offense is impacting other areas of your life. Because of the offense of your boss, you're having a hard time trusting future employers. 
You're having a hard time trusting people. You have a hard time bringing your wall down. Here's what Paul said in Romans 12, 19. Mind you, he wrote this to the church in Rome who were being persecuted. He says, do not take revenge, my dear friends. Leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay. Can I give you very simply three steps to help you forgive someone else that are all biblical? Here's the first one. These are the words of Jesus, is recognize that offenses will come. Like even this week, think to yourself, there will come a moment that someone will offend me at some point to this week. Offenses will come, Jesus says. Number two is resign your right to get even. Paul says, do not take revenge. Resign it. I don't have a authority to get even with anybody else. And then release them to God. Can I say it this way? Is allow God to be God. Allow him to be judge. Allow him to be the executor of justice. I'll get off his throne when it comes to offense. I'll get off his, that's not me. I'm not there to execute justice. That's his. Now, let me say this. I'm not saying if it's a crime, then you need to execute natural justice. I'm speaking about your heart. I'm speaking about your spiritual life when it comes to this. Overlook offenses. Here's number three. So you have let it go. Overlook offense. We close with this point is believe again. Believe again. This man who had been discouraged had to believe again, have faith again for God to move in his life. You know, as I thought about this, this man, he had repeated disappointments, right? 38 years, no healing. Have you ever been disappointed to the point where it, it diminished your faith? Like it affected your faith, like that thing you were praying for. You were praying for that marriage, that relationship to be restored, and it didn't happen. You were praying for your grandmother to be healed, and she wasn't healed on the side of heaven. Have you ever had those moments where, and what can happen is repeated disappointment can begin to diminish your faith. Come on, we see this in sports teams, don't we? Like sport teams who continually lose or, or don't win in important games. And, you know, I won't name any teams, but the Dallas Cowboys I said I wouldn't name any teams but the Dallas Cowboys. I love you, Pastor Anu. No, but true story. <laughs> you know, they, they haven't been so great in the playoffs. You know, that's, that's, a, that's fact, right? That's fact. Is that fair? That's fair, okay. He's a Dallas Cowboy fan. This, if you're a Dallas Cowboy fan, you're mad at me. You need to forgive me. Don't get offended. That's why I did point two before this moment, Okay. Overlook the offense. Uh, but even as they ended the playoffs this season, there were several Cowboy fans that, that I talked to, and I was like, hey, how you, are you hopeful? They're like, you know what? We'll probably lose in the playoffs again. Why? Well, because recently they've been losing in the playoffs. Here's why I say that. Sometimes if we're not careful, our disappointments in life, I, I've even, maybe you've been there. You can think, why even pray? didn't change before. It didn't change back then. Why even believe God again? And maybe you're there, and I'm sensitive to that, I under, and it's understandable. Like this man who had, who had 38 years, it would have been understandable for him to be like, no, Jesus, I'm not going to pick up my mat and walk. 
Hebrews 11, the author of Hebrews says this about faith. It's the certainty of things hoped for, a proof of things not seen. The author here uses that word faith. It's not a word referring to the Christian faith. It's a word to referring to faith in general. And let me just say this. You have faith even if it's not in God. Let me, let me get practical. When you got in the car today, you drove here. You had faith the person driving on the other side wouldn't cross the yellow line, did you? Because if you didn't have faith for that, you wouldn't have gotten that car. Come on, you get into an Uber car, you have faith that that person will get you to where you're going safely. Come on, when you go get lunch later today, you have faith whoever's making that sandwich, they're going to make it, and it's going to be safe to eat. Are you following me? Like, you live by faith. If, whether or not you realize it, I know we, start, we tend to think as our culture very cognitive, very rational, but you live every day by faith. If you're married, you got married in faith. You didn't know he or she would be faithful. You didn't know that. Like, there's no way to know for certain. You live by faith whether or not you realize it. Here's what I want you to dial in on. Why do you live by faith? Why do you trust the other drivers? Well, because every person on the road, hopefully, took a driver's test. Why, why do you trust in pilot when you get in a plane? Because they've, they've gone through certain steps to be a pilot, right? Not just some random guy off the street. Like, why, why do you trust the person making your sandwich at lunch today? Because you are believing that restaurant has protocols in place to ensure that meat is safe. Or if you're vegetarian, the lettuce is safe. I don't, you know, whatever that is. <laughs> You eat. I didn't mean it sound that way. I just, I don't know. <laughs> Moving on. Overlook offense. I'm going to keep going back to that point. All right. Listen. And if you've been walking with God, if you've been walking with God, listen, I want you to hear this. God has been faithful to you even when you've been faithless. You're saying, Jeremy, how? You got breath in your lungs today, don't you? There are some people who, did, who woke up today without breath in their lungs. You're going to go to work tomorrow and use that brilliant mind of yours to do work and earn a living. God gave you the ability to be industrious. Hey, parents, those little rewards in your house called children, God gave you those rewards in your house. He's been faithful to you. How is God credible? His faithfulness to you. His blessing over your life. Maybe you're thinking, Jeremy, I don't have a history with God. Let me even just share some credibility just based on historical evidence. This, this is just encouraging for some of us to know. Do you know the works of Julius Caesar? There are 251 known copies found of the works of Julius Caesar. The earliest are from 950 years after he wrote. The New Testament alone, the New Testament scriptures, if you ever question the credibility of scripture, which we could spend a whole three hours on this, the New Testament alone has more than 5,000 original manuscripts, most of them between 200 and 300 years later, some less than 100 years. This historian said this, if the scriptures don't pass a test for trustworthiness, then no records from that era can. The scriptures are credible. Even historians speak to the credibility of scriptures. The credibility of Christ, you know there are, over, there are 574 verses in the Old Testament speaking to Christ, and he fulfilled all of them. There are over 300 prophecies speaking to the coming Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled all of them. Many say, based on that fact, fact alone, he is who he says he is. So listen, how many of you know our God is credible? 
Our God is credible. He's been faithful to you, and he's even credible by historical records and the data. Hebrews 11:6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe he exists, and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He rewards those who intently seek him, who earnestly seek him. He rewards those. So how do you grow in your faith? You intently seek God. You have a plan to pursue God. You have a plan. You don't just go about it haphazardly. You prioritize, as you did today, gathering with your church. You prioritize time in God's word. You prioritize being in community with other believers so you can grow in your faith. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That word Greek for hearing means to pay attention to and to obey. How do you grow your faith? In the word of God. I want to close with this, and the, and the worship team can come forward. It's Matthew 21. It's my final scripture. It's the words of Jesus. And he says this, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and don't doubt, you can do things like this and much more. You can even say to this mountain, May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. You can pray for anything, and if you have faith, you will receive it. Here's what he's saying in this moment. Here's what I want you to, 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 to capture hold of. In one translation, when he refers to this mountain, he actually says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed. You know, mustard seed is the smallest seed in, uh, that's known. I have a little shaker of mustard seeds in here. Very, very small seeds. And here's what he was communicating here in this moment. And I want you to catch this because some of you may have grown up in faith traditions and, and maybe this is something you still struggle with. Or maybe you were taught, whether, whether uh, consciously or even subconsciously, that you were taught that sometimes what you receive from God is dependent on how much faith you have in God. Now, some of you are thinking, where are you going, Jeremy? This sounds, that sounds true. But I want you to hear the words of Jesus. He says, if you have the smallest amount of faith, you can move a mountain. Listen, you seeing the power of God in your life is not dependent on the level of faith you have in this life. It's dependent on the size of your God. Because listen, I want you to find this. If we think it's dependent upon us, that's a form of self-righteousness. Well, I just need to have more faith. As if faith, listen, he says, you have faith the size of a mustard seed. I think of the man who experienced a miracle in his own life in the scriptures, Mark chapter 9. He says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Listen, here's, I want, here's I where, I where I want you to be affirmed today. If you struggle with doubt, because Jesus, there are several times he even speaks to the little faith that the disciples had. And if we're not careful, we can fall into the trap of the Pharisees and think seeing the power of God in our life is contingent upon our level of faith. And we need to increase our faith. But Jesus said, if you just have a little bit of faith, I'll move in your life. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed. So here's my encouragement today. There are some of you in this room that maybe, maybe you've been coming to church for years. But maybe some disappointments in your life 
you've been struggling with faith. You've been struggling, even though you may even go through the motions of prayer, but you're having trouble with trusting God. You're having trouble believing God. I want to pray for you as we close service today because I believe in my years of following Christ that at some point in your Christian walk, if not even right now for some of you, you will have doubts. You will have a hard time believing. You will be like that man saying, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like, I, I, I believe, I want to believe. And I, if you're here today, if you're watching online, I believe that you want to believe. Maybe there have been some things that have happened to you that you're having a hard time believing. I want to pray for you to believe again. There are practical things you can do as we just shared, but I'm going to believe for the Holy Spirit to do what only he can do in your life today. So I'm going to encourage you to believe again.